So if it's your first time here at Calvary Chapel Orlando, tonight is probably going to be the least Calvary Chapel Orlando study you've ever been to, in the sense that I'm not going to be using a ton of Bible tonight. We are going over the cults, and tonight's the night where we're going to address, like, where did all the modern-day cults come from? If you've ever wondered, like, so this is kind of the way my brain works, okay? And maybe, maybe my brain's just weird. But the way my brain works is I observe things, and sometimes I observe things, and I go, huh. And when you observe all the modern-day cults, they all found their origin in the 1800s in one country. That's suspicious to me, right? Like, you would think that if indeed God said, was saying that, hey, that my truth's been lost and it needs to be rediscovered, that it would not just all be in one place. So we do need to examine a particular period of history in the United States known as the Restoration Movement. And so that will be our topic tonight. Just to kind of recap where we've been up to this point, what is a Christian cult? A Christian cult is a group that would not only claim to be a pure expression of Christianity, but they claim to be the only true and exclusive. In other words, no one else has the truth. The only true and exclusive expression of Christianity. And the founders of that cult, they claim that they have rediscovered true Christianity by rediscovering either how to interpret the Bible or by finding additional revelations from God. Now, what we've been looking at each week is we've been going through a section of Scripture that deals with these types of issues. For example, we went over in our first week, we went over 1 John chapter 4, where we are commanded to examine what a messenger says and how they live. God commands us to test the spirits, to see if it's the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. Then we went to Acts chapter 17, where Paul taught us that we as Christians have a fixed point of reference. In other words, things that God has revealed to us about Himself that keep us on track, keep us on the right track, I should say. And then we looked at the entire book of Jude last week, a miracle. One study, we did the whole book of Jude. Jude urged us to contend for the faith. In other words, to contend for the truths that have once for all been given to us in the Scriptures. So what we're going to pause this week before we get back into some intense Bible study is we're going to look at, well, where did all these cults come from? And then we're going to examine some answers from the Bible to those cults' foundational claims. So the restoration movement, we're going to look at the main players in this movement in the early 1800s. The first main player is Mr. Thomas Campbell that we have back here on our projection screen. Thomas Campbell was born in 1763 in Ireland. He was raised Anglican. He became, however, a Presbyterian minister after he graduated from the University of Glasgow in 1786. He became frustrated with the sectarianism of the various Presbyterian denominations. If you read during that time, I would probably have been frustrated too. And then on the advice of his physician, because of health issues he had, he was counseled to move to the United States. And he did. He thought getting away from the churches in England, he hoped that he would find more unity among the churches in America. However, he just found more of the same things that frustrated him. And so two years into serving a congregation in the United States, a Presbyterian one, he published a paper that was titled Declaration and Address, in which he laid out where he believed the church had failed to remain faithful to the pure gospel. 
Well, the Presbyterian Synod in that region, I think it was uh, Pennsylvania at that time, responded by suspending his ministerial credentials. Well, Thomas decided instead of trying to get their favor, he would leave the Presbyterian Church, and he organized something called the Christian Association of Washington. It was an association of persons seeking to grow in faith. They would all get together and they'd just talk about the Bible. Not a good idea. Two years later, they reconstituted the association as a congregationally governed church with him as the minister. The church ordained his son Alexander as a minister a year later, 1812. In 1815, Thomas and his son joined the Redstone Baptist Association seeking for new unity, but by 1824, it became clear to the Baptists that the Campbell preachers were not traditional Baptists in their theology. To understand why, we need to now look at his son Alexander's history. Alexander Campbell was born in 1788. He himself became frustrated with the Presbyterian Church in Ireland over what he perceived to be theological pettiness. One Sunday, while his father was in the U.S., he refused communion and he broke away from the Presbyterian Church. Now, his father being a Presbyterian minister, he was deeply concerned what his father would think about him leaving the church that his father served in. But when the rest of the family moved to join Thomas in the U.S., Alexander was surprised to discover his father had done the same exact thing, left the Presbyterian church. Free from the creeds of their old denomination, and then Alexander, after the birth of his first child in 1811, he began to reconsider his views on baptism. Those views on baptism became solidified when he met a man named Walter Scott in 1822. He was especially impressed with Walter Scott's so-called five-finger gospel concept and told his father Thomas, trembling, you need to hear Walter preach. Walter Scott was a school principal and a tutor for most of his adult life, but his passion was talking with others about Christ. In the 1820s, he too became disillusioned with the Presbyterian Church, and he broke away, attempting to become a traveling evangelist. It was at one of these speaking engagements that Alexander Campbell first heard Scott preach about the five-finger gospel. That sounds a little weird, but that's the picture that Mr. Scott would use to communicate what the gospel was. He said, to become a Christian, one needs to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, repent of their sins, confess their sins, and then be baptized. That was his message. And when a person would do all those things, God would then gift them with the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life, those three things. Now, it's not a gift if you have to do something to get it, but I digress. We'll cover that later. Now, this is, by the way, still used by the Church of Christ today. They just changed some of the verbiage. That's what they use today to teach people how to get saved. Now, I want to give a little caveat to that because if you're sitting out there going, Pastor Will, you're saying Church of Christ is a cult? Isn't Max Lucado, like, isn't he a Church of Christ pastor? Church of Christ is not a cult. Church of Christ is a a denomination that has very varying views. There are some that are cult-like and hold to this view. There are some like Max Lucado who reject this, and they're fine. So it depends on who you're talking to. If you've encountered some of those who are Church of Christ folks that have remained loyal to the Campbell's teaching and Scott's teaching, well then, yeah, they're probably involved in heresy. Now, Scott was so gifted at his presentation of this five-fingered gospel concept that in 1827, Alexander Campbell successfully pushed for Walter Scott to be named the evangelist of the Baptist Association. Now, if you have had any interactions with Baptists today, you know that Walter Scott's gospel goes against Baptist theology. 
They do not believe that baptism is required for salvation or that baptism guarantees the forgiveness of sins or the Holy Spirit or eternal life. And so, during the spring and summer of 1830, the Beaver Baptist Association, who came up with that name? The Beaver Baptist Association leveled attacks against the Campbells in what was called the Beaver Anathema. You don't ever want to be hit with the Beaver Anathema. In June 1830, the Tates Creek, so this is now just a few months later, the Tates Creek Baptist Association in Kentucky, they adopted the Beaver Anathema, and they added four additional charges. I knew you were going to laugh. So, so my wife's name means from the Beaver Meadow, so I knew you were going to kind of chuckle at some of that, but yeah. So your folks got them, babe. They got them. So. This, of course, led the Campbells and Walter Scott to break away from the Baptist Association, and they created a new group. They took the name to themselves. They called themselves disciples, believing that a Christian should take no other name than the name that Jesus gave to his followers. This point of belief led them to eventually join with our final member in the cast of the Restoration Movement, and that would be Barton Stone. Now, Barnstone was born in 1772. He became a Presbyterian minister and a renowned evangelist in the Second Great Awakening. He helped lead the Cane Ridge Revival, which saw over 20,000 people attend over seven days. He, however, resigned from the Presbyterian Church in 1803 after arguments over doctrine and the enforcement of the policy of the Kentucky Synod. (laughs) What issues did Stone have with the Presbyterian Church doctrine? Well, first off, he rejected the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. In his address to the Christian churches, that's what he named his group afterwards, the Christian churches. You still have those churches today, by the way. In his address to the Christian churches in 1821, he said, and I quote, Revelation nowhere declares that there are three persons of the same substance in the only one God. And it, the Trinity, is universally acknowledged to be above reason. In other words, it makes no sense. Stone also rejected the atonement. He did not believe that Jesus died in man's place as a substitutionary sacrifice. In his publication, Atonement, the substance of two letters written to a friend, he said regarding Christ's imputed righteousness that the Scripture never mentions a word of satisfying law or justice or of paying debts of obedience or suffering for us. I would say, Mr. Stone, you're not reading the same Bible I am. When he and four other ministers left the Presbyterian church, they signed a document that stated that they would take no other name than the name Christian. They became known as the Christian churches. And so this common ground between Campbell's disciples and those who would only call themselves Christians attracted the Campbell's and the Stone Movement, and they began to have discussions together. In 1832, in Lexington, Kentucky, Barton's Christians and Campbell's disciples decided to merge which is why the Restoration Movement is also sometimes called the Stone-Campbell Movement. The two groups agreed on the imperative. In other words, this is something that they were going to focus on doing, the imperative of restoring ancient Christianity, achieving both unity and freedom. Now, their dream of unity died when Alexander Campbell, the last living member of the group, died in 1866. Their followers split into three separate church organizations that still exist today. The Disciples of Christ, which is a very liberal wing of the movement. They don't accept the the inspiration of Scripture. The Christian churches, which are very popular and usually quite large today, they they try to really play down their their history and their past. In fact, if you're talking about this, they'll, they'll probably be a little embarrassed. And then thirdly, the Churches of Christ, the Church of Christ movement, which are all over the place as well. 
One other division occurred, but this one occurred in 1993 with the formation of a group called the International Church of Christ. If you've been here the last three weeks, I've already mentioned them a few times. That new movement had its roots right here in Central Florida, in the Crossroads Church of Christ in Gainesville, Florida. They believed that Campbell restored the true gospel, but that the Church of Christ messed it up after he died. And so they called to return for the aggressive evangelistic message of the early Stone Campbell movement, and they would only accept sold-out followers of Christ into their church. They started recruiting by hitting college campuses. Most of these organizations have been kicked off college campuses at this point because of how abusive they are. One of its members, Kip McKean, who I've mentioned a few times up to this point, planted an ICC church in Boston that became infamous uh, when they ended up on a 2020 episode for their abusive leadership and their attempts at mind control. They broke away from the Church of Christ and formed the International Churches of Christ in 1993. And when you took the traditional Church of Christ legalism coupled with the high-demand accountability structure and the use of guilt and manipulation, it produced an abusive mind and life-controlling cult. Kip McKean is still around today. The ICC has actually kicked him out of the movement, and so he just went and called them heretics and started another one. So this is how this works. Now, that's the history. So how did the Stone-Campbell movement define ancient Christianity? Because that's what they said their goal is, to restore ancient Christianity. So how did they define that? Number two, what kind of unity were they trying to achieve since that was their goal, to achieve unity? And thirdly, what was their idea of freedom and how would that be achieved? Well, all of those beliefs can be found by anyone. They're in a publication called The Millennial Harbinger. Uh, That's the first issue right there. Alexander Campbell launched the publication in 1830, which laid out his views on how to restore the church to its ancient truths. And all four of our players that I've covered, Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, uh, Barton Stone, and Walter Scott, all wrote for this publication over the 30 years that it was in existence. So, what is the theology of the Restoration Movement? Well, I'm going to only quote some key sections of the very first issue that I linked up there. You can read the entirety of every issue of the Millennial Harbinger online. It's at the Haffey Trust Digital Library. So if you want to check me out, make sure I'm quoting things correctly, or you want to do your own research, you go right there. It's all right there. Everything I'm going to say tonight came from these documents. I'm not making anything up, and I'm not doctoring anything. Now, the opening prospectus of the Millennial Harbinger, the prospectus was the legal document you had to file with the state when you were going to make a publication. It said this. It said, this work shall be devoted to the destruction of sectarianism, the idea of different denominations, uh, infidelity, and anti-Christian doctrine and practice. It shall have for its object the development and introduction of that political and religious order of society called the Millennium which will be the consummation of that ultimate amelioration of society proposed in the Christian Scriptures. That's a kind of wordy statement. But what we arrive at here by this statement is the first part of the Restoration Movement's theology, and it's a doctrine called post-millennialism. What's post-millennialism? For example, at Calvary Chapel Orlando, we are pre-millennial. We believe that Jesus is the one who's going to come back and establish His kingdom, and then He will rule and reign for a thousand years, all right? Post-millennialism believes that we have to take over the world, and we set up the kingdom, and then Jesus comes to sit on the throne, all right? This view was extremely popular in the 1800s. It's almost non-existent today, with the exception of the cults. 
but it was one of the first parts of restoration movement theology. This idea that the church needs to reach a certain level of purity and a certain level of influence in the world, and once that happens, Jesus can come back. In Discovering Our Roots, The Ancestry of the Churches of Christ by C. Leonard Allen and Richard Hughes, so these are their own scholars, they describe this idea of millennialism. They said another theme of the Restoration Movement was that of hastening the millennium, making it happen faster. Many Americans of the period believed that the millennium was near, and they based their hopes for the millennium on their new nation, the United States. Members of the Stone Movement believed that only a unified Christianity based on the apostolic church could lead to the coming of the millennium. So when he talks about that this paper is going to be dedicated, that their movement, their teaching is going to be dedicated, its object is the development and the introduction of this society called the millennium. That's what they're talking about. We need to fix the world. We need to take control. We need to bring everybody into one fold, one organization, so that Jesus can come back. One author in the 70s contended that people in the 19th century were in a stupor. He quotes, they were drunk on ushering in the millennium, and I agree with that statement. Alexander Campbell believed and taught that the Anglo-Saxon race and American democracy were God's chosen vehicles to usher in the millennium. Now, before that can happen, though, the church had to be purified. It had to rediscover what he called the ancient gospel, which is the second part of restoration theology. The church had failed to remain faithful to the ancient gospel, but it had been rediscovered by the Stone-Campbell movement. This next quote comes from issue one of the Millennial Harbinger. He says, the Son of Mercy, referring to Jesus, has arisen. But as in the natural, so in the moral world, there are clouds and there are obscurations. There are eclipses that are partial and total. There have been both partial and total eclipses of the Son of Mercy since His rising. I need to stop there for a second. There is nothing that can eclipse Jesus, period. You can say, well, the world's in a bad spot. Fine. Jesus is still Jesus. Jesus is still shining. Jesus is still working. It doesn't matter if people aren't listening. Jesus remains Jesus. You cannot eclipse and darken out Jesus completely. But that's what he testified. But then he said this, but a new order of things has arisen within the memory. Where has it arisen? Within the memory of this present generation, begun. He's referring to an Old Testament which talks about the priests becoming repenting, and he says it's like now it's happening in their day. Many of the priests have become obedient to the faith, and the natural, political, and religious rights of men, referring to the United States structure of democracy, have begun to be much better understood. All of these auguries, signs, portents, miracles, he says, are favorable to the hopes of the expectance of the restoration of the ancient order of things. In other words, everything in America is set up perfectly so that we can rediscover ancient Christianity. This eclipse, this cloud, these obscurations can be done away with because of what we're discovering now. His next quote's a little arrogant. Same in issue one. No seven years in the last ten centuries, 
as the last seven has been so, have been so strongly marked with the criteria of the dawn of that period, which has been the theme of many a discourse and the burden of many a prayer. In other words, the last seven years of his life and all the things he's been discovering, he says, never in the last a thousand years has everything the church has been praying for happened like it's happened in the last seven years. Listen, anybody, somebody starts telling you that, run, <laughs> run. Campbell is, of course, here referring to what he, his father, Walter Scott, and Barton Stone rediscovered, the idea that one isn't saved nor his sins washed away until he is baptized. And, of course, they are God's chosen prophets to spread this rediscovered truth to the world and then to usher in the millennium. Later on in the article, he says, the first step towards the introduction of this glorious age is to dissipate the darkness which covers the people and hides from their eyes the sun, the quickening, renewing, and animating sun of mercy. In other words, all this false teaching has hid Jesus from everyone. He can't be seen. So the first step towards introducing this millennium, bringing it about, the mighty aging, he says, or rather the successful means of this most desirable revolution will be the ancient gospel. It is the only and all-sufficient means to destroy Antichrist, to heal divisions, to unite Christians, to convert the world, and to bless all nations. So, this is the third important part of the Restoration Movement's theology, that these men are God's chosen instruments to bring about the unification of all Christians under one true church organization. If you go to a Disciple of Christ church webpage, you will see the following in their history and belief section. That, you can find that today. This is from a website. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says in here, the pioneers of this movement were seeking to reform the church from within, and they sought the unification of all Christians in a single body patterned after the church of the New Testament. So this is not just something I'm doctoring words, or it's not just something that was in the past. These ideas are still acknowledged and even present in one of the denominations that was birthed through what these guys did. Thomas Campbell, the father, regularly taught that all denominations have apostatized. Barton Smith taught regularly that the churches who resisted union with them and clung to their denominational traditions would be destroyed, leaving the true church of Christ unscathed and therefore prepared to usher in the millennium. So, when we talk about the Restoration Movement doctrine, it's three concepts. Postmillennialism, the concept that we can usher in or even predict Christ's return. Secondly, the restoration of lost or abandoned truth, and it is centered on the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That is at the heart of it, that they rediscovered that if you are not baptized, you are not saved, your sins are not forgiven, you don't have the Holy Spirit, and you can't go to heaven. And then thirdly, the unity of all Christians under one church organization. Now, why did I do all this, and why did I bring this up? Because those three ideas are at the core of almost all modern-day cults. These three ideas are at the core of almost all modern-day cults. And when you consider that the Stone-Campbell movement has links to the founding of almost all modern-day cults, you start to see that suspicious thing that I talked about earlier, that this is not people rediscovering anything. They're all just stealing from each other and then getting a little creative with it. Now, what is the link with the Restoration Movement to modern-day cults? Well, let's look at Mormonism. 
Signy Rigdon, he was originally a Baptist minister and evangelist. Well, he became a Campbell disciple in 1821. By 1830, the same year that Alexander Campbell started publishing the Millennial Harbinger, where I've just read all those quotes, by 1830, Rignon began to to proclaim the idea that revelation was not complete. There was more revelation to come from God. In other words, the Bible's not done. God has more writings to give to us, more revelation to give to us. Campbell did not like that, so he and Campbell had a falling out over this idea of new revelation. And so Campbell said, no, we just need to rediscover the ancient gospel. But Rignon said, well, no, there's more revelation being written. Now, there is debate on whether Rignon knew Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism at this time, at 1830. But even Mormons claim that Joseph Smith's ideas about the Book of Mormon were influenced by Sidney Rignon. In 1831, Rignon broke with Campbell, and he became one of the Joseph Smith's key advisors. Three members of Alexander Campbell's congregation later became presidents of the LDS Church. So they, these guys are intrinsically linked, the Mormon Church and this movement. Oliver Crowdery, who is incredibly famous and infamous in the Mormon church because he's the one who recorded Joseph Smith's dictation of the Book of Mormon. He came out of the Campbell movement. Campbell wrote numerous articles blasting Joseph Smith for stealing his ideas and then taking his ideas beyond what he taught. His chief concern, though, was that Rignon and Crowdery took several thousand disciples, which are Campbell's followers, into Mormonism when they left. And yet, despite their differences between Mormonism and the Restoration Movement, the similarities are unassailable. Both groups, the Mormons and the Restoration Movement, believe that white America was God's chosen land. They both held to postmillennialism. Both groups believed the truth had been lost and needed to be restored. That's why if you talk to a Mormon today, they will tell you, The reason that we have these other books and we don't go to the Bible is because we don't believe the Bible as it presently is can be trusted. They will tell you that. It's not that they say that the Bible when it was originally given is not from God. They say the Bible you have in your hand has been corrupted and can't be trusted, so we need these other revelations. Same idea as the Restoration Movement. Both the Mormons and the Restoration Movement believe in baptismal regeneration. If you are not baptized in a Mormon temple, you cannot eternally progress. That's their view of salvation. We'll get into that in a future teaching. You cannot progress. You are stuck, all right? You cannot progress to your full salvation. Another group that's tied is the Seventh-day Adventists. William Miller, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, said this in chapter 17 of his memoirs. He said, the state of the cause at this time the cause of Adventism, the idea that they were predicting the day Jesus would come back and getting ready to meet him on a hill. They literally dressed up in white robes in 1843, and then again in 1844, and then again in 1852, and then again in 1854, and sat on a hill because they thought they predicted the exact day Jesus was going to come back. This is what he said, the state of the cause of Adventism at this time, and the state of mind produced by the belief of the Advent near that it's going to happen and we know the day when it's going to happen. He says, was very truthfully and impartially depicted by who? By Reverend Alexander Campbell in the following article copied from the Millennial Harbinger. And then he lists the article I just read to you portions from. The Millerite movement was birthed in 1831. That's just one year after Campbell began publishing the Millennial Harbinger. 
Miller taught that the Scriptures do reveal to us in plain language that Jesus Christ will appear again on this earth on or before 1843. If you read through the issues of the Millennial Harbinger, that was Campbell's predicted year of consummation in the very first issue. Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Watchtower Society, Miller's calculations, William Miller, who is the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, Miller's calculations were heavily used by Charles Taze Russell to come up with his own calculations for Christ's return. He calculated that it would happen in 1914. Russell was also heavily influenced by the Christadelphians, which was another Campbell spinoff group. Do you see a pattern here? There's a pattern. <laughs> Almost all the major cults we interact with, are in, with in our city, they started in the United States during or just after the Restoration Movement teachings of Thomas and Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, and Barton Stone. That is not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence. When we see all these facts, what they are explaining to you is that these movements were creations of men who were subject to the winds of doctrine that were flowing through that time period and tossed them to and fro, like we learned about in Ephesians, that we're not, it's not supposed to happen if we get in the Word. And that's exactly like Jude warned us, as we read in Jude verse 10 last week, when Jude explained But these, these false teachers, they speak evil of things which they don't know. They critique the church. They critique the teaching of the apostles. They critique the things that we've learned from the Word of God because they don't know the Word of God. But what they know naturally, in other words, what they come up with in their own mind like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. They come up with these ideas that are contrary to the Scripture because they don't know the Scripture. The ideas came out of their own hearts and out of their own minds. So, the question then is, how are we going to heed, in regards to these things, Peter's challenge to us in 2 Peter 3, 17, when he says, you therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things beforehand, that people are going to twist the Scriptures. Beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Now, most cults are going to target people like you and me, all right? Mormons in particular, they target Baptist churches. They go into Baptist churches, they sit in the back, and they start talking to people. These groups are looking for people like you who want to please God, so that they can tell you, well, where you're at right now is not the truth. And we know you want to please God, so come over here because we have the truth. So it's important to understand how we combat some of these foundational truths that are in, that were in the restoration movement and that spread to all these major cults. So let's first examine the topic of truth being abandoned and needing to be rediscovered. Let's look at Matthew 16. One of the things that is the constant in every cult, modern-day cult, is that truth was abandoned and needs to be rediscovered. So what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, when we get to Matthew 16, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, and He's hanging out with the disciples, and He asks them a question in verse 13. He says, what, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, I, I, you know, what are you hearing? 
And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, the prophet who was promised to come before the Messiah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In other words, there's a lot of weird ideas out there about you, Jesus. And so he says to them, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the one God promised us, the Son of the living God. You're not just the promised Messiah, you are God in the flesh. Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. What a fascinating statement to make by Jesus. Peter, don't, don't get a big head. You didn't come up with it by yourself. Like you didn't, you didn't, you were just sitting around contemplating your navel or logicking things out. And in your great intelligence, you came to the conclusion, you know what? Jesus is the Messiah and he's also the son of God. He says, this is something God's revealed to you as you spent time with me. God's revealed to you because I'm the one who the word promised I would be. You have looked at me and you see what the word says about me and God's revealed to you that I meet those, those qualifications. And then Jesus says this, and I say also unto you that you are Peter, and the word there is Petra, a little tiny pebble, or a Petra, it's a little tiny pebble. And upon this Petra, this giant firm rock, I will build my church. In other words, Peter's not the rock that, that Jesus is going to build his church on. He's building his church upon something bigger than that, the confession of faith that Peter made, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that, I'm going to build my church. And then he says at the end, what? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, According to Thomas Alexander and Joseph Smith and Charles Chase Russell and Mary Baker Eddy and every cult leader that you can run across, that's exactly what happened to the church, isn't it? Jesus was blotted out. He was totally eclipsed. The gates of hell prevailed. The church failed completely. We look through the history of the church, and yes, there are dark times. When I look at the things that frustrated the Campbells and frustrated some of these other people, I get it. Back then, you had to figure out if you were a free or not free, evangelical or not evangelical, new light, old light, Presbyterian. There were literally, like you'd walk in and you'd have to figure out like of, of nine pieces that you could be, which one you were. And if you weren't one of those, they didn't like you. I get it. I understand that when we look at church history, there are dark periods. I understand that when we look at how the church has handled the Bible or how the church has handled our conduct and how we've treated each other and how we've treated the world, there are time periods where we're not doing what Jesus said. But in the midst of that, the gates of hell still didn't prevail against his church. Gates are a defensive weapon. This is not the idea that the enemy's charging us with some gates, like, oh no, the enemy's coming at us with gates. What are we gonna do? We don't have anything to defend against gates. Gates are a defensive structure. In other words, my church is always still going to be moving forward, taking ground from the enemy, always. That can't happen if Jesus gets eclipsed. That can't happen if the church loses the truth. In Matthew 24, 
when Jesus was talking about the last days. In verses four and five, he said, take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and shall deceive many. Later on, he says in verses 23 through 26, then if any man say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, there, don't believe him. We found Jesus. He's been hiding for 700 years. Somebody says it to you, you go, peace. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Whatever you're selling, I'm not buying. For there shall rise false Christs and false prophets. Oh, and they'll show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you beforehand. I'm, I'm letting you know so you don't get tricked by this. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert. Don't go forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers. Don't believe him. What's fascinating is when you look at Adventist theology and Jehovah's Witness theology, they have a special theology that says that Jesus went into a private chamber. Brute beasts. You would get better theology from counseling with your hamster. Because it arises out of their own hearts. When you look at this, you go, Wait, Jesus said, like, you don't ever listen to anybody. He says he went into a private chamber. He's in a private chamber. Like, your whole theology is based on Jesus going into a private chamber. They never read their Bible. They didn't know that. Truth was not abandoned. doesn't need to be rediscovered. We just need to walk in the truth that's always been here. The second area of their foundational claim is the concept of baptismal regeneration. And I'll tell you right now, if you ever get into a conversation from someone from the International Church of Christ, you are going to have to answer this question because they're going to hit you with it. And they're going to go right to Acts 2, 37 and 38. So let's go there. I promise you, and I'm not even a prophet. I predict, though, if you get into a conversation, you will be here. Because they're going to point to this and say, you cannot be forgiven until you're baptized. Acts 2, 37 and 38. Peter has just preached that, the amazing message on the day of Pentecost. And it says in verse 37, now when they heard this, this sermon by Peter, amazing sermon, calling them to, telling them they crucified their Messiah. It says they were pricked in their heart. They were cut to the heart. It hit them. They're like, oh man, he's right. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we fix this? And then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now you read that and you go, well, it sounds like Campbell was right. One problem. The word for is the preposition eis, E-I-S in the Greek. The word means into. Be baptized into the remission of sins. Now, when I use the word for, even in our English language, it can mean a lot of different things. For example, I'm going to read a statement to you. It can be taken two ways. Jesse James wanted for murder. On the one hand, that can mean Jesse James already committed a murder, and now he's wanted for it. It could also mean looking to hire Jesse James to commit a murder. Right? An action that's either already been done or an action that is undone. When we see the word into here, it's referring to an action that's already been done. We are not being baptized so we can get the forgiveness of sins. 
We're being baptized into the forgiveness of sins. The repent concept, it means to turn away from our sin, to, obviously because they crucified their Messiah. In their case, it's to turn away from their thoughts that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and to put their faith in Christ. And then to publicly show it. What do we need to do? Well, you need to get saved. And then you need to get baptized. But the whole concept of both those things is that when we repent and get saved, the Holy Spirit comes into us immediately. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, we read it already, so I don't want to go into too much detail. When we studied Ephesians, you can get the CD or you can listen online. And, but it tells us in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, referring to the blessing that we have of being God's inheritance. He says, we the Jews, we trusted first in Christ, but then you Gentiles, verse 13, you also trusted. How did you trust? After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It doesn't say after you were baptized. After you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The moment we confess faith in Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. There's no delay. The moment we confess our faith in Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sins. Baptismal regeneration is not a doctrine taught in the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through what? Faith, not faith and baptism, faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, that salvation. It's not anything you accomplish. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So baptismal regeneration is not taught in the Scripture. We are baptized into the remission of sins. We're not baptized so we can receive the forgiveness of sins. We're baptized into something that's already been accomplished the moment we put our faith in Christ. What about the claim that we need to be unified under one church organization? Well, Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts, but it's, actually, let's go up to verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I would not have you ignorant. For you know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. Wherefore, in other words, I don't want you to be ignorant, ignorant so I'm going to give you truth. I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man could say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now, anybody can just say Jesus is Lord. That's not what Paul's saying. The word there, Lord, is the word krios. And it, it, that's a word that was not used prior to this of anyone except one person, and that's Caesar. When you would show your loyalty to Caesar, you would take a pinch of incense, you'd sprinkle it upon the little altar to the idol of Caesar's genus. They believed that when you became Caesar that the, the, the Caesar God came upon you. That's why they were called Augustus. They were considered to be gods in the flesh. And you'd sprinkle a pinch of incense on the altar, and you'd say, Caesar, Kaiser is Lord. Kurios. So Christians will say, well, we can't say that. We say Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul's talking about here. Saying somebody's going to put their life on the line like that, they're not, they can't do that except by the Holy Spirit. Nobody can just put their courage up and do that. It's only by the Holy Spirit. 
And no one's going to call Jesus accursed if he's speaking by the Spirit of God. So in other words, if they're not doing things exactly like you, it doesn't mean they're not from the Lord. Verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, different ministries, but it's the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations. Some ministries that might be in the same area or doing the same thing, they might operate a little differently, but it's the same God which works all in all. We don't have to be all under one organization. This idea of unity under one organization is something that some in the church are striving for again today. Paul never sought that. Paulus never sought that. All these guys never sought that. In fact, Paul got upset when people were doing that. And they're like, well, you need to be of Apollos, or you need to be of Paul, or you need to be of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Well, we're the church of Christ. Another part of the Bible that somebody didn't read. None of us should be saying things like that. Jesus, your Lord, you following him? Hey, keep following him. You don't got to do it with us. And then lastly, this idea of post-millennialism. The Bible's very clear how the millennium comes to be. Look at Revelation 19 with me. And I'll close with this. This is one you probably won't run into, but it's good for us to at least just examine the Scriptures tonight. Just in case. The Bible tells us how the millennium's going to come about. In Revelation 19, verse 11... John describes. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was the leader of a denomination. Is that what it says? Joseph Smith. No. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew except he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the armies which were in heaven took over the world so he could come from heaven down to us. Is that what it says? No, they followed him. Followed him where? Verse 11, heaven out of heaven. Oh, we're already there. They followed him out of heaven upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth, not our mouth, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads out the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you might eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was simply taken. Jesus just comes down, grabs him, 
and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which with he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both, the Antichrist and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were slain with the sword of him, Jesus, not you and me, the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. When does a thousand-year reign happen? After Jesus comes back. That's why we're premillennial. Jesus comes back first. When does a thousand-year reign happen? Because we set up the kingdom, we take over the world, or we create one organization that's pure and whole? No, Jesus comes back and he cleans house, not us. In fact, there's a parable that Jesus told, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the angels, symbolically the servants there, Jesus tells us later on, they're the angels. They come to Jesus, the master, and they say, Master, you sowed good seed into the field wheat, but the enemy came and he sowed tares. Do you want us to go rip out all the tares? And guess what Jesus says? He says, the master said, no. Let them grow up together until the very end of the age, lest when you tear out the tares, you end up tearing out some of the wheat too. Listen, I get it. Sometimes you look at the church and you go, doesn't look pretty. Jesus, I don't like your bride very much. But let me tell you something about Jesus. He loves his bride. You don't mess with his bride. He says, no, let them grow together lest you tear out some of that are my bride. And then the last day, we'll take care of it. So, hopefully I gave you some education tonight. Let's all stand. I have talked long enough. Next week, we will start looking at some specific things. We'll probably look at Mormonism next week and look at what the Bible says about some of the claims of Mormonism in particular and that way you can be a little bit better equipped to understand where to go in the Word if you end up in a conversation. So, Lord, we thank you so much that you, are, you can't be defeated. You, as we sing in that song, you cannot be stopped. Lord, you're the Lord. You're the Lord. And you, it's not us because we're so great, but you said that the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. So, Lord, we want to keep occupying till you come. Keep staying faithful to the Word, not getting sidetracked, not getting so frustrated with what we see around us that we, we end up in error. But Lord, we want to heed Peter's exhortation to not fall into these things, not to fall prey to those who twist the Scriptures to their own devices. Instead, Lord, we want to grow in your grace and in the knowledge of your Son. So Jesus, help us to do that this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.